Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Check out all their podcasts, all their live events, everything they have going on at OsirisPod.com. Today, I present an interview with Maria Smilios, a New York City native who has a Master of Arts in Religion and Literature from Boston University, where she was a loose scholar and a presidential scholar. Maria spent five years at Springer Science and Business Media as development editor in the biomedical sciences and has written for The Guardian, American Nurse, The Forward, narratively, The Rumpus, and Day Magazine. Her book, The Black Angels, the focus of this episode tells the untold story of the nurses who helped cure tuberculosis. Nearly a century before the COVID-19 pandemic upended life as we know it, a devastating tuberculosis epidemic was ravaging hospitals across the country. In those dark pre-antibiotic days, the disease claimed the lives of one in seven Americans. In the United States alone, it killed over 5.6 million people in the first half of the 20th century. Nowhere was TB more rampant than in New York City, where it spread like wildfire throughout the tenements, decimating the city's poorest residents and communities of color. The city's hospital system was already overwhelmed when, in 1929, the white nurses at Staten Island's Seaview Hospital began quitting en masse, pushed to the brink of a major labor crisis and fearing a public health catastrophe. City officials made a call for black female nurses seeking to work on the front lines, promising them good pay, education, housing, and employment free from the constraints of Jim Crow. Spanning the Great Depression and moving through World War II and beyond, the Black Angels puts these women back at the center of this riveting story by spotlighting the 20-plus years they spent battling the disease at Seaview. Using first-hand interviews and never-before-accessed archives, Maria details how they labored under inconceivable conditions, putting in 14-hour days caring for people who lay waiting to die, or worse, become guinea pigs to test experimental and often deadly drugs at a facility that was understaffed, unregulated, and marred by rampant racism. Their narrative is interspersed with the parallel story of the tuberculosis cure, a miracle public health policy that couldn't have happened without the work of the nurses at Seaview. So, in this episode, me and Maria explore just how terribly tuberculosis was riddling the United States, and particularly New York City, and the birth of the Seaview Treatment Center in Staten Island, where a cure was eventually brought into being. We celebrate the black angels, the black nurses who worked at the hospital, who answered a call to help and eventually changed the world. We discuss how racial discrimination affected the nurses, both in the deep south and also upon their landing in New York. We talk about the drug trials that led to the cure, the patent wars that followed, and so much more. Maria's book is fantastic. It truly serves as a tribute to these heroes who were written out of his story that they were so much a part of. I couldn't recommend it more, and you can learn more about it in this interview with Maria Smilios. Margin. 
podcast. Like I said, absolutely love the book. Learned so, so much as a New Yorker. Meant a lot to me, but I just, there's these, just the fact that you were honoring these, um, these black angels uh, who really deserve a credit in this realm was really, yeah. really special. So thank, thank you for you. the time. Um, I'd love to start hearing about how you kind of came upon the story okay. of the black angels and um, kind of what compelled you to want to tell their story. Yeah. So um, in 20, uh, 2015, I was working as a science editor um, for Springer. And I came across a line in a book that said the cure for tuberculosis was found at Seaview Hospital in Staten Island. As a New Yorker, I became curious. I had actually been to Staten Island only two times. Mm -hmm. um, And I Googled it and up came this article about the cure and tuberculosis and Seaview Hospital. Mm -hmm. But next to it was another story, another little article about a woman who was 86 years old at the time, a former nurse named Virginia Allen. And she, it said she had gone home to the nurses' residence at Seaview Hospital, and she belonged to a cohort of nurses called the Black Angels. Mm. And so that piqued my interest more, and I began Googling, and it produced nothing. And then three days later, on a lark, and, you know, really frustrated, I called the Staten Island Museum, and they told me, oh, I know Virginia. She's actually going to be giving a talk here in three days, because the museum was doing a grand reopening. And so I took my then four-year-old. We mm-hmm. went down to Staten Islands. I met her. She gave me her email. And then we started meeting. Every Wednesday, she was volunteering at the Schomburg. We met at a little cafe at, in Harlem Hospital. And we talked about everything except the Black Angels. Oh, um, wow. We talked about books. Yeah, she loves and she loves her. literature and culture. Yep. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so we talked about, you know, uh, what the latest exhibit was at the Schomburg. We talked about, she loves Zora Neale Hurston, Maya Angelou. We talked about literature. And when I left, every, 10 minutes before I left, she would tell me, here's a little bit about the Black Angels, go find out more. Wow. And and that would have all been fine if there were archives, but there were no archives. Yep. Yep. And so I would come back the next week with a broader narrative, which then became the backdrop of the book, like yeah. the, the, the landscape of the historical events mm-hmm. that were occurring. And I would say, hey, did you know that your aunt was working during the Great Depression, and this is what was happening. And so she was like, great. And so we did this for like six weeks. Uh, uh. And then she invited me to her home in Staten Island, which was the restored nurse's residence. And mm-hmm. it sits in the middle of this abandoned hospital complex um, uh. with 500 yards from her front door is mm-hmm. the children's hospital where she worked. It's skeletal remains, jumble mm-hmm. of forest. Yeah, and the other side is the pavilions. Yeah. Which are yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to talk about those a little bit. So you yeah. kind of alluded to it too. Kind of, there's so many um, stories of all the people involved mm-hmm. in the book, whether it's nurse, the nurses, the patients, doctors um, and more, but uh kind of curious how you piece some of these stories together. Like I said, you just alluded to it some, because I mean, Edna, for example, I mean, we follow her from Georgia all the way to Harlem, mm-hmm. where she's kind of, uh, you know, does finishes her training there, then to Staten Island. And, you know, it's, it's interesting um, just how in-depth these stories were. How'd you, how'd you piece it all together? So this wasn't your sort of sit down and I'm going to make a narrative arc. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't make a narrative arc with the nurses because there was no, there were no archives. And so oh. for years I interviewed the families, friends, anybody who would talk to me about these nurses. Mm. And 
I just sat back and I listened to whatever people were telling me and I jotted it down and started seeing commonalities. And that that narrative, the nurse's narrative emerged really. It's the voices of all of these families. And that's how that was structured. Uh, and so then I had, yeah, early from all these oral discussions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was really challenging. It took a long Excellent. time, <laughs> um, you know, choosing, I wanted, I knew that the book, you know, you only have a certain amount of pages. And so I needed to pick, you know, two or three nurses that were going to drive the narrative because there were two other narratives. There's the narrative of the cure, mm-hmm. which involves Dr. Robichek yep. and his son was alive. And so he told me lots of stories about his dad and Robichek, there are archives on him by virtue of him being, you know, so celebrated when the cure was found. Yeah, His family had these scrapbooks two scrapbooks that were filled with articles from the time oh wow just every single article on him his wife had cut out even articles like in spanish and in german and so i was able to access those and i learned that you that actually the new york times um the new york herald some of those are unaccessible right now because they haven't Mm -hmm. been digitized digitized yeah yeah um and so then there was that narrative. And then there was the third narrative about the desegregation of the hospital system. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, obviously there's the patient component yeah. to this. So I, you know, the challenge was how do you bring all three together, keep the plot moving forward, mm-hmm. keep people turning pages? Um, you know, a hospital scene can get kind of boring. You know, there's only so much you could see, especially with tuberculosis. As somebody told me, tuberculosis nursing is pretty boring mm-hmm. compared to other forms of nursing. It's it's yeah. especially at Seaview. It was the same thing every day. You know, um, Seaview, the average stay was one to three years. Mm. Patients were sent there to die, basically. So what the nurses were doing were palliative care. Mm-hmm. And so the challenge was, how do I make this interesting? How do I relate the story? And how do I push the narrative forward with the nurses? So for example, you mentioned Edna. Mm -hmm. Edna grew up in Savannah, Georgia. She was born in 1900. The interesting thing about all of these places is they had their own newspapers. The African-American community had their own newspapers. And the newspapers were reported in the community. And so I found hundreds of little articles about Edna and her father. Wow. And it really began like, a, it was like a knitting a quilt, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just you take one after another, after another. And for, you know, so her dad was an itinerant preacher who walked off his plantation in 1899. And they would say, you know, Reverend R.V. Sutton preached Isaiah. Reverend R.V. Sutton preached Kings. And so I had an idea of what he was preaching. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of uh, leads to her following her heart because he was yeah. following his calling as mm-hmm. well, which is interesting. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And her son is alive and he mm. was able to contribute. You know, I would say to him, what biblical passages did your mom default to? Oh. You know, oh. um, why did she come to see you? And he mm-hmm. said, you know, she felt it was her calling. Uh-huh. And so getting that level level of detail well, from him is and you could read it in the book it's it's it, it feels so thorough and it is and like you said it that is quite a challenge but it you did such a great job with it, thank it is you. It, i didn't honestly when i picked it up i didn't expect it to be the page turner it was because i knew what i was getting into <laughs> a best story about nurses and tuberculosis and i'm going through it and i'm like this reads wonderfully it's great thank you um let's take a step back a little bit and just talk about uh, I'd love to hear you talk about um, just kind of how bad the scope of it, how bad tuberculosis was um, within the country. And I mean, specifically New York, which was mm-hmm. hit 
really, really hard. So at the turn of the 20th century, tuberculosis was killing one in seven. Mm. Um, in the city, we, you know, I always tell people, erase everything you know about New York City now and think about a city that has, I mean, if you walk down the streets of New York, you see trash overflowing and we have garbage pickup every day here, basically. Mm. There was nothing like garbage pickup then. Garbage just piled up in the streets. The tenements on the Lower East Side, there were 80,000 of them in less than a two-mile area. They housed um, 2.3 million people, then almost two-thirds of the population. They were filled with, you know, um, immigrants, people coming over for a better life. So you had crowds, you had dirt, you had smog coming out of all of the factories. You know, there was, you know, everything was heated by coal at the time. And so there was this constant sort of grayness in the air. Tuberculosis is a wily microbe. As mm -hmm. I describe it in the book, it's perfectly designed to torture and kill slowly. Yeah. Um, it's arrogant. It it's insidious. Mm. You know, unlike other diseases, the microbe enters your body and you don't get sick right away. It's not like the plague, where in three days you've got pustules mm -hmm. and and buboes. This sits for a while, and it could be weeks to months before you start feeling sick. And mm. so you have this population of people who are sick, who are contagious, they're walking around, they're making other people sick, they're living in close quarters with no ventilation, uh, the tenements and the factories where they're working. They're, this is tuberculosis loves cool, dark environments. It thrives. It was the perfect, as you know, one person said, the Lower East Side was like a Petri dish. Yeah, it yeah. was this perfect area. And mm -hmm. so it, it was a if people want to remember back to the first days of COVID when we didn't know what was happening and you had that fear that if I breathe, am I going to die? That was what tuberculosis mm. was. That was what it was like living with TB. It was stirred people's most potent fears. Mm. Everybody knew somebody with TB. And to top it all off, it was a disease that stigmatized you. You got it yeah. and you were ostracized from your community. People were leaving their family. They yep. just kind of disowned them, which is crazy. Just the ways that, uh, you know, the different ways in which it killed people. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, degrading children's spines. That's, yeah. I mean, that's just crazy that the, the, the gentleman dealing with his inflated tongue, just all these different stories. It's it's just, it's really intense. That, that quote you have in the beginning, it is the plague of all plagues, um, both in age and in power, insidious, uh, what is it, steady and unceasing by earnest. Yeah. That's, that's, what, that's what it is. It's so intense. Um, so we have this story where, where there's this uh, narrative where these nurses flock to New York from different mm -hmm. places. It, it, it speaks to the great migration. Um, it's interesting to talk about why they left and kind of what you know, what were, what were they promised in New York? It's kind of the same question there. What, what was the reason they decided to come to New York? So down south at the time, you had hundreds of black nurses who were on or underemployed because the same country that drew lines around water fountains and bus stations and waiting rooms also drew them around hospitals. Black nurses were only allowed to work in black hospitals. There were only about 200 black hospitals versus mm. 6,000 white hospitals. White hospitals chose to remain understaffed than to hire black nurses. And so you take Edna, for example, who had been trained in a training school as a nurse. Um, this school bartered there. So 
in exchange for learning to nurse, she got free education. When that ended, they let her go. And so now she's working as a clerk and her dream is really to be a surgeon. And she has little opportunity in Savannah, but Savannah is also her community. This is all she knows. She has her family. Well, actually her family has migrated and she's left at home with her younger sister to take care of. And she can either stay in this sort of dead end job Mm -hmm. in a place, you know, with Jim Crow and laws that are more and more stringent. They haven't changed. She's watching her younger sister, who's only like at the time, seven or eight, grow up. Edna's in her mid-20s. And this opportunity presents itself. And the city had promised the nurses good pay, housing, education, continuing education if they needed it. And what most of all, what they called a, quote, rare opportunity to work in an integrated hospital. And one of the things many people don't know, and I didn't know this before I started writing the book, was that only four of New York's 26 municipal hospitals were integrated. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. I didn't yeah. yeah. And so Edna gets this opportunity. She's told about this opportunity. And, you know, suddenly she's standing at this crossroads, right? On the one hand, her choice is to stay in the Jim Crow South, watch her sister grow up, be confined to this job, never actually see herself go beyond at the moment. Maybe mm-hmm. it would have happened years later, being a clerk, right? And never really having the opportunity to live a professional middle-class life in America. On the other hand, she's like, well, I could go north, leave everything behind, because it meant leaving her sister behind. She couldn't take her. Yeah. And risk my life on the wards of a hospital. And she chooses to come north um, and she leaves her sister in in D.C. with a brother and she comes here. Yeah. Were you able to get any of a a read any? She wrote a lot of letters. Was it Americus, her sister? Yeah, she wrote. She would write all the time to her sister. Um, Were were those a source at all? They they were. I never. So the the brother, uh, sorry, her her son would tell me. That, okay. You know, my mom would write these letters and she mm-hmm. would tell Americus everything. She said they they never kept any secrets, mm-hmm. everything, you know, what they ate. <laughs> and then Americus came to live with Edna in the 1940s mm-hmm. and she never left. And so she yeah. raised the son. And so he was this great source of information Absolutely. of, you know, oh, you know, my mom was the softy. Aunt mm-hmm. Americus was the one who was the disciplinarian, yeah. you know, and yeah. so oh, cool. getting 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 all those insights and details. Yeah. Um, so as opposed to what they were promised, I think it's interesting to talk about what they actually came upon when they came to New York, because I think it was a little overwhelming and unsuspected what Edna and others um, kind of came upon. So they arrive in New York City, and first of all, the hospital is three-hour commute from Manhattan. That's wild. That's, that's and two to three one way. We're talking right. One way, right? Yeah, so she five hours she, plus. She moves. To, she moves to Harlem, and mm-hmm. she spends a year and a half at Harlem Hospital, um, training there, which is a harrowing ordeal because it's uh, like Seaview. It's woefully understaffed. Except Seaview has only TB patients. Harlem mm-hmm. Hospital has everything, um, and she completes this training program and then moves into a boarding room in Harlem. And she's traveling from way up on 125th Street. The train 
all it's basically all the way uptown to all the way downtown. And then she gets downtown and she has to get a ferry. And then from the ferry, she has to get a bus. And the bus is about 40 to 45 minutes. Wild. And the ferry to the bus, you have to time these things. It's not like the ferry is leaving every three minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this commute is long. So that's the first thing that they're stunned with, that this commute is anywhere from five to six hours round trip every day. The hospital is on an isolated hilltop, mm-hmm. 400 feet above sea level. Um, it was described to me as a small city. You know, it kind of rushes upon you. It, the, mm-hmm. the buildings are huge. If you go there today, you kind of get an idea. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the buildings have crumbled and they've raised four of them. Mm-hmm. And so here she is in this place that isn't basically a no man's land. Yeah. And she's working 12 to 14 hours. That that hospital, too, is woefully understaffed. Mm-hmm. It's overcrowded. Imagine, you know, when you think of a hospital now, you think of like rooms or 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 yeah. like a hallway with partitions. This is like one open ward. It's a room with beds on either side and running down the middle. Yeah. And th- this is what she encounters. She also encounters this terrible um, supervisor. Yeah. Is that Miss uh, Lorna Dune Mitchell? Miss Mitchell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she Ms. sounded Mitchell. really intense. The the hand washing le- uh, lessons. The um, you know her systematic pattern of of living mm-hmm. the rules and everything. She was yeah. she was something else. Um, and and so Miss Mitchell is a, a white woman. She's a typical white supervisor in the sense that she wields her power in mm-hmm. ways that to make the black nurses' lives miserable. No. Um, for instance, she spies on them. She wants to catch them doing something wrong. She refuses to let them wear masks, even though masks prove to mitigate the spread of tuberculosis. Um, She doesn't give them transfers if they want. Because her job was also to train and retain a staff of nurses. Remember, Mm -hmm. you know, the white nurses leave and Seaview Hospital is on the verge of closing. And so her job is you need to train these nurses and keep them here. Mm -hmm. And so training them meant, no, you can't keep leaving because I can't keep filling the ranks. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds that sounds intense. Yeah, even just landing when she landed in Harlem, she found she found it overwhelming. You know, the poverty kind of confused the hustle, the bustle, everything was just super, super different. You've um you're talking about it a little bit there, but I think it's the the listeners will find this super interesting. Just kind of what Sea View was like. There was these eight kind of open air pavilions mm-hmm. that uh you were constructed to kind of commiserate with the magnitude of the evil that was tuberculosis. What um what was it like? What was what was this hospital like that was set up just to combat uh, TB? So if people could picture, you know, I always say like a crescent moon laid on the floor. The hospital, the, they were, there were eight pavilions in an arc formation. Hmm. They were five stories high. They were narrow. They sort of seemed to rear upon the sky. They were very angular. They, they, hmm. they, there was nothing soft about the buildings. Um, there was nothing so-called like, oh, this is so inviting. I want to go and stay in these buildings. I mean, there were freezes on the outside and each floor, there were five floors, were flanked by porches. And when you came up to the porches, what you saw were TB patients on the porches taking the rest cure. So that was um, the idea. Was... They, they they thought at the time. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, Maria. But yeah, like no, the, go idea, ahead. the idea was that the that their, you know, kind of their number one treatment at the time was this rest cure, meaning that you know, outside air and just resting was kind of your, your option. So they had them just yeah. sitting 
all, all time, all, you know, any time of year, right? All day long, any time yeah. of year. There were specific ways that you wrap the blankets to keep them warm. Mm-hmm. Um, and they basically sat outside. And if they were ambulatory, they could walk around. Um, if not, they laid in their beds. They looked at the sky. One patient told me that she spent months just lying in a supine position, staring at like this little opening in the window, watching the sky changing throughout the day. Um, it was sad. It was a sad place. People were depressed. People were angry. They were completely disconnected from the outside world. You know, there's no no such thing as TVs. They weren't really allowed to have radios, but people snuck radios in. Oh, yeah. They tried to keep the patients happy by making them repeat these maxims mm-hmm. um, that were always re- rooted in some kind of religiosity. You know that you know if enough faith will make you well, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there were occupational therapists who came to keep people busy by giving them stuff like to knit, woodworking. These things often didn't work. Patients complained that it just made them miserable. The worst thing about it was the time. It was extremely regimented. And I tell people to think of like being in a barracks. Yeah. You know, you get up at six o'clock, you eat at seven o'clock, at eight o'clock, you do this, at nine o'clock, you do that. And then there's a two hour rest period where you can't do anything. And so their entire days, they became children, were demarcated by the hours of the, by what was being dictated by the sanatorium. And people lashed out, you know, they lashed out at the nurses. They were, imagine being stuck somewhere for three years and not being able you see, and the the worst is you could see the city across the way, you know, this kind of people came here mm-hmm. for a better life and they found Seaview and they're on these porches and they see the city and they see the, you know, the ocean, the mouth to the Atlantic and they're stuck. They're, yeah. This is what they came for, you know, and they, and they see their dream almost like it's just five miles out of reach and they can't get out. What? what an absolute nightmare <laughs> yeah exactly the possibility and then live in that hell which is you know what uh, uh, the the eight buildings was described having its own remarkable catalog of tragedies suicides stabbings chokings people suffocating or starving or dying uh any other way tuberculosis uh mm-hmm. kind of moved to kill you um so yeah besides the rest cure the other thing was surgery right that was like kind of oh, the other yeah. option that they did which that was super super intense. there was even a point where they were collapsing lungs because they thought like um uh you know the, the air to so make it dry mm-hmm. so air was a problem but so let's move to some of the positives and, and kind of what happened there because it's so beautiful the work that these black angels did and um it was described that no one was more qualified than these nurses to assist uh, Robitzek, is that I say it right? Robitzek, Robitzek, Robitzek yeah. Uh, and the other doctors with the top trials. So, what was it that made them so qualified, and 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 really what they did to contribute? Because it was pretty remarkable what they did to contribute. So, Robitzek's son told me his dad had told him it was the nurses. It had it not been for the nurses, none of this would have been possible. None of the that. trials, keeping the hospital running. Yep. He said they were the ones that were bedside every day. He breezed in and out. You know. They were there from anywhere from 30 minutes to three hours nursing TB patients. And as I said, this was more of palliative care. So they got to know these people extremely well. And they became almost like their own family. But more importantly, they knew the disease intimately. They knew Hmm. all its nuances, how the disease ebbed and flowed, how one moment 
you could be well. And the next moment your voice changed and something was going on in your body mm-hmm. because it, at, you know, there's, there was no, there were no computers. So everything was done by hand. Everything was bedside. And so the, they took copious notes. You know, when I looked at the nurse's logs, they were incredible. The notes mm-hmm. they took, it's this like unfolding narrative every day, you know, like Johnny woke up lesions on his face the next day, Johnny's lesions are crusting over his, he has laryngitis. Right. And so you read it and it's this unfolding narrative and what they're tasked to do with these trials is look at, well, let me just say the drug had never been tested on anybody before isoniazid. It had been tested on animals. Mm -hmm. Hoffman LaRoche called them, called Seaview and said, Hey, you know, that drug that we've been talking about, it's doing good on animal trials. Want to test it on humans? And so Seaview said, yes, let's do it. And this wasn't, this wasn't that they, I don't want people to believe that this had anything to do like a Tuskegee experiment. Yeah, the people yeah. who were involved in these trials, Robichek was a very moral doctor. There mm-hmm. were no federal parameters for drug trials. No. Um, we were just coming off the Nuremberg trials. And so people were trying to get some kind of ethical clinical trial structure going. He asked consent from all of the patients. The criteria was that death was imminent. Mm. So basically it was, you can try this and you might get well, or you're going to die because there's nothing else left for us to do to treat this disease. And so people said yes. And the nurses were tasked to not only watch their physical condition, their emotional state, their mental state while they were sleeping. And so they would write all of these things down, like they would dose them and then they would watch throughout the day. There were only 92 patients on two different wards, the male and the female ward. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, Robichek would collect all this information. He would tally it together. And that's how they started to get these charts that oh, hey, look, the number one thing it seems to cause is dizziness. Or the number one thing that's happening is people are twitching in their sleep. Mm -hmm. Only a nurse could see that because they're the only ones there. And it was these little minute things like they started notice people people were getting very giddy. Mm -hmm. And they thought, well, is this giddy because they're not feeling sick or is this giddy something else? And so they wait and they watch. And that was the thing. They were incredibly meticulous, but incredibly observant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing. That's yeah. absolutely amazing. It's, fasc- it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah I, it really isn't. And that's, I mean, that's what's so great about this book is you put them right back in the story because they're such an integral part of mm-hmm. this story. Um, the patent, um, kind of when this miracle drug came to be, that was super fascinating because obviously people want to get a hold of this and make money from it and the whole thing. But um it was actually became it actually became available to for wide use because uh, as it was put in all this time it had been sitting on a dusty bookshelf and that's the patent. Can you tell us a little bit about that story of how it was able to be used widely once it did once they did find out it was working? Sure, that's a great question. The cure for tuberculosis was probably one of the most coveted things mm-hmm. that people wanted to do because it was such an old disease. And everybody wanted, they knew that you would get these, you know, this, this universal global like accolades. So you'd win prizes, you'd make lots of money Mm -hmm. because people wanted it gone. And so at the time there were three drug companies working with the same uh, isoniazid. So Mm -hmm. in, in 
at Seaview, Hoffman LaRoche produced um, Rimifon and Marsalid. At Wheel Cornell, they were testing another form of isoniazid. And in Germany, they were testing another form, Bayer was. And Wheel Cornell and Seaview knew of the trials happening and they had said we will talk we will announce it in April. Anyway, somehow or another it leaks out. Yeah. And um the newspapers immediately, it's a wonder drug. The it's cured despite the fact that Rubicek is please, please do not think it is a cure. It's just working, right? But the drug companies all of a sudden, all three of these start racing to Mm -hmm. patent the drug because they want the patent on it because they know that it's working. Mm -hmm. And they find out, sadly, that in 1912, (laughs) there were these two Austrian Uh PhD students who needed to pass their dissertation and came upon isoniazid, shelved it because they didn't have anything to do with it. They passed their dissertation. And so the cure was sitting on a shelf since Mm -hmm. 1912, but it was unpatentable. Mm-hmm. Because the boys, those two, the two people exactly. had the two students, I forgot yeah. what their names are now, had patented yeah. it, had patented the drug. And so it was cheap to produce. It came from coal tar, widely mm-hmm. distributed. Yep. And within nine years, Seaview closed and it saved, it still continues to save tens of millions of lives. Just, I just think that's yeah. amazing that that because of that, I mean, I'm sure there was going to be gatekeepers and, and people that weren't going to be able to get to the drug and think about how many more people were saved just because of that story. Oh, absolutely. So fascinating. So to bring us home a little bit, I'd love to hear you talk about what you believe the ultimate legacy is for the Black, uh, the black Angels, because I know, you know, you did just talk about what they did, uh, you know, during the trials to help that cure come about, which is obviously huge. But it's bigger than that. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what you feel their legacy is. So that that is a really layered question. I I, I I love the question Um, because I've talked to the yeah, I've talked to the families about it. So the families want the legacy of the Black Angels to be that here were these women who came up and and worked really hard to become to integrate into American society and become professional women. And they started this neighborhood in Staten Island and they really wanted to help humanity. Um, And that is what the families say. And I agree with that, you know, listening to this story for eight years. But I I think that their legacy is also in many ways, I say that as sad as the story is, as, you know, disheartening and grotesque in many ways that people were treated this way, the nurses and the patients, um, that they were considered expendable. It is a story of triumph. And for me, you know, the legacy is this story of triumph and of hope and the idea that there will always be people who are willing to take care of us. Mm-hmm. People like the Black Angels who rise to these occasions. We saw it with COVID when no one else will, and they'll risk their lives and they'll do it. And in doing so, they saved as I said, tens of millions of lives and continue to do so. And I think their legacy really lies in that moment of, I will help you. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something really beautiful in that. Um, I, I'm not a nurse. Yeah. You know, I'm the person they're saving. And I, it, there's something gorgeous in that. You know, I, I keep saying, like, I wish they would get like a Presidential Medal of Freedom. Right. Right. I really do. I, I wish that they would be honored on a really big global scale. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, well, the story's out now a little bit. documented <laughs>、yeah. because of you. I mean, I'm seeing, I love seeing all the articles around about it and people talking about the story. And I'm glad to spread the word here. I mean, you've truly, the book really honors these heroes and like Robichek's sunset. I mean, it doesn't happen without them. And you put them right back in the story. So it's a special book. And that thank、way. you. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. I love spreading the word. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This heart is broken in two. Tell her it's a case of emergency. There's a patient by the name of Gregory. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.